Good morning. Uh, we will be reading from the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 4. And if you're reading from your pew Bibles, that's on page 1030. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. It's great to be with you today. And I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5, as we just read a portion of it. We're going to go through the entire chapter, and shame on you if you need the page number for the book of Revelation. <laughs> Same as with the, the book of uh, Genesis, the beginning and the end. You know what it means when a preacher who's Baptist takes his, witch, his wristwatch off and puts it on the pulpit? Nothing, yes, absolutely nothing. <laughs> My buddy Lou right there. Well, you know, we live in a confusing and disturbing time. Globally, we have two active wars taking place as we gather here this morning. The Ukraine and Israel. Phyllis and I were planning to go to Israel the beginning of next year, and that's now down the drain. China is an increasing threat to our security. And in North Korea, Kim il Kukabu continues to fire his missiles. There's a lot to be anxious about when you look at what's happening around the world. But let's bring it a little bit closer. Let's bring it here to our own nation. We live in a confusing and disturbing time culturally. Are any of you feeling like me, absolutely dizzy at how things that were recently unthinkable are now unquestionable? Like overnight. The loudest, most important voices in our culture today are calling up, down, and down, up. Wrong is right, and right is wrong. Confusing and disturbing times here in our country. How about getting it even more personal? You may be sitting there thinking, you know, Pastor Paul, I can't be worried about what's going on globally or nationally because my life is in turmoil right now. My life is a time that is confusing and disturbing to me. When I put my head on the pillow every night, my mind just starts to race with anxiety and fear. For Phyllis and I this fall, it's been a diagnosis of breast cancer. You wanna talk about something that will take the wind out of your sails? and cause you to begin to wonder what's going on? Well, Phyllis and I have been there. Thankfully, God is healing. But when you first get that diagnosis, you don't know what that's going to mean. 
So maybe for you, it's a medical crisis. Maybe for you, it's unemployment. Maybe for you, your marriage is on the rocks. Whatever it is, I am here to say, as your brother in Christ, we do not have to despair as those who have no hope. We have an anchor. We have one who will keep us from despair. Even our church is in a time of transition, is it not? We've lost our lead pastor. He's moved on. And now we're in a time of transition. Okay, who is our new pastor going to be? How long will it take to find him? Will he be as anywhere near as good-looking as Pastor Paul? I mean, look at this right here. Some eye candy for you this morning. You know, it took years to build this up right here. So who knows? Uh, hopefully he'll be a lot better looking than me. And even better, bringing God's word. Amen? But, you know, times of transition like this can be confusing. But we do not have to fear. We do not have to be in despair. Because no matter how bad it gets, globally, nationally, or in your own personal life, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so I want to point you this morning to Christ and to the fact that he is worthy of our worship. And so he is worthy of our trust. And that's our big idea for this morning. Since Christ is, the lamb is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of our trust. Again, Revelation chapter 5. One of my favorite books in, in the Bible. Not because it tells me all kinds of super secrets in a puzzle book. No. The message of Revelation is very simple. It's easy to get. You ready? Here you go. You don't have to go to Westminster Seminary now to take uh, Dr. Poitras' course on Revelation. Here it is. You ready? God wins. That's it. God wins. Isn't that glorious this morning? God wins. Ah, an amen from the back. Okay. I, I was wondering, is this really a Baptist church? You know, or is it more like an Episcopal church? Just kidding. Just kidding. The book of Revelation gives us the final unfolding of God's plan of redemption. His future plan for the world, including the return of Christ, the final defeat of Satan, and our future in heaven. Wow. John, the human writer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was taken through the very doors of heaven and into the throne room of Almighty God, much like the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And in a mediated fashion, John was able to gaze at his glory, to marvel at his majesty, to behold his beauty, and to perceive his power. And this morning, as we Spend some time in Revelation chapter 5. I want to set up a little context for you because the first chapters of Revelation, of course, are John's uh, letters to the churches. And Pastor Josh covered them uh, a number of months ago. In chapter 4, we see the worship of God the Father, which leads into chapter 5 where we see the worship of God the Son, our Redeemer. In chapter 4, the praise of the 24 elders, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, 
is directed toward, with the heavenly host and the cherubim, is directed toward God the Father who is seated on his throne. Here in chapter 5, that glorious praise and worship is directed to God the Son who is standing in front of the throne. Before we get into the worship of this chapter, it begins with a very unusual book that is sealed and leads us to consider the most important question in all the book of Revelation. In fact, I would submit to you that it's the most important question of the scriptures. And so let's begin by looking at the book with the seven seals as we read in the first four verses. Now, notice that this book is not a bound book like my Bible here, but is actually a scroll that is written on both sides. A scroll is a long uh, sheet of parchment paper held uh, at each end with some, with some poles. And again, a number of unusual features about this scroll is that it's written on both sides. Now, that normally never happens with ancient scrolls. Second, it is sealed with seven seals. Now, if you have an ancient scroll that was an important document, uh, maybe a diplomatic message to a king or another government, maybe it's a last will and testament, maybe it's uh, a military dispatch, it would have a wax seal so that no one unauthorized would tamper or change the document. But this scroll has seven seals. What is the meaning of this? Well, one clue we get from the passage may help. Notice the book is said to be in the right hand of God the Father. Now, in the scriptures, the right hand of God is always symbolic of his power at work in history. His power at work in human events. So what is this book? I think it's clear from the passage that this book is God's plan for history. It is his comprehensive plan, his purpose for the universe and history and concerns every person in every age. Again, this scroll is written completely on both sides and in chapter 6 of Revelation... If you read ahead, you'll see that when this scroll is opened, it unleashes God's final plan for history. The number seven, what's that all about? Seven seals. Well, it's important to remember that the number seven in, Bi in the Bible often is symbolic of completeness or perfection. Remember how God created the earth in seven days. In other words, it is a perfect seal, and it will take someone perfect, a perfect individual, to break those seals. And so the strong angel, who himself is unable to break the seals, cries out with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the seals? Who is worthy to open the seals? Who is worthy to open the seals? And the answer is given to us in verse 3. No one, not in heaven, not on the earth, not under the earth, is worthy to open these seals. No one anywhere. So John starts to cry. He starts weeping. 
Because this then means that God's final plan of redemption and his plan for the rest of history will remain sealed and will not take place. Or will it? Well, let's pick up in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5. Who is going to be found worthy? And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God throughout all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of God who was seated on the throne. Hallelujah, dear friends. We have someone who is worthy. We have Jesus Christ, God the Redeemer, who is the only one worthy to open this book. Buddha isn't worthy. Muhammad isn't worthy. Harry Krishna isn't worthy. Joseph Smith isn't worthy. The Pope isn't worthy. The Republicans and the Democrats are not worthy. Only Jesus Christ is worthy to open the scrolls. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. And so as we go through the rest of the chapter here, we will see him worshipped and exalted as God the Redeemer. For it is by his redeeming work that he is able to break open the scrolls. The heavenly host, as we'll see here, are going to worship Christ for three things. They are going to worship him for who he is. They're going to worship him for what he does. And they're going to worship him for what he has. The worship of this great assembly is going to worship him for who he is, for what he does, and what he has. So let's begin by looking at the worship of Christ for who he is. As we consider who Jesus is, three unique titles are given to him. And the first is he is called the Lion of Judah. Now this is a reference to Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob gives the scepter, that kingly element, to Judah to signify that it would be from the tribe of Judah that the king would come. And eventually, the ultimate king of kings, Jesus. Now, the image of a lion symbolizes a number of powerful truths about Jesus. His dignity, his sovereignty, his, his uh, ultimate victory, his courage, those are things that a lion kind of represents, do they not? But he's also called the root of David, as you see here. Now, there are two meanings for this title. Humanly speaking, it means that Jesus is the one God promised to David who would fulfill the promise that there would always be someone from the line of David who would be on the throne of Israel. Secondly, it speaks of the deity of Christ, who is the ancient of days, who the Psalms say is the one who would be David's Lord among his descendants. So two things with the root of David. Well, you said, Paul, there's three titles. I'm only seeing two here. Well, the third is the Lamb of God. The first two titles are announced to John by the elder who is here. But John looks over in verse 6, and what does he see? A lamb. Jesus Christ appears to him as a lamb. 
Wait a minute, the Lion of Judah? But he looks like a lamb? In Revelation, Jesus is called the lamb no less than 28 times. And the idea of Jesus as the lamb is seen throughout the scriptures, starting way back in the book of Genesis. Remember when Abraham was told by God, take your son whom you love, your only son Isaac, and trek up to Mount Moriah. And there you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. So Abraham dutifully uh, follows God's word. They start heading up Mount Moriah, and Isaac's kind of perceptive young guy. He says, yo, Dad, where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? That is the question of that chapter. It's the question of the Hebrew Scriptures. And thankfully, that question is fulfilled by John the Baptist in the opening of the Gospels when Jesus appears to, to John as he's coming to be baptized. And John says what? Behold, what? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Who is given for our sins. Dear friends, there are tremendous things to notice about this lamb. Remember, seven is the uh, number of perfection in the Bible. I notice this lamb looks kind of weird. He's got seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits. Seven horns, perfect power. Seven eyes, perfect wisdom. Seven spirits, perfect presence. You know, theologians say that God is omnipotent, omniscient, okay, and omnipresent. God is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he's everywhere present. And so we see the triune nature of God featured in this, in this lamb. In verse 7, the lamb does something unbelievable. He goes right up to the throne of God, and what does he do? He grabs the scroll out of the right hand of God. That's incredible. The irony here is so thick. The first irony is that the line of Judah, this great root of David, appears as a lamb. Now, what do you think of when you think of a lamb? Gentle, meek, uh, easy to, to lead somewhere, <laughs> but not this lamb. This lamb is the one who takes that great book out of God's right hand. His hand of power. And he achieves this victory as that Passover lamb who was slain. Who will now usher in God's final plan for the ages. Wow. But we not only adore him for who he is. We adore him as we see it for what he does. Let's pick up. At verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you transformed, uh, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As the heavenly hosts witness Jesus, the Lamb, taking the book with the seven seals, their immediate response is to fall down in worship 
of the Lamb. Their tears of sorrow are now turned to cries of praise. And let's look at this beautiful hymn that we have here in Revelation. Worthy are you, verse 9. Worship is simply this, ascribing worth, calling someone to, to be worthy of our praise and worship. And why is he worthy? Well, it says here, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood. By Christ's death on the cross, by his shed blood, the requirement of God's justice was met. Therefore, Jesus could redeem us or purchase us for God by his paying of that price. And since this is the focal point of the work of Christ, the high point of God's plan of redemption, all of heaven sings of the cross and of the blood. Now, you know, today there's a number of denominations which have removed from their hymnals all of the hymns referring to the blood of Christ and the wrath of God and the justice of God. Well, I can tell you one thing, my friends. I can guarantee you this. That hymnal will never be used in heaven. It will never be used in heaven because without the shedding of blood, what? There is no forgiveness of sins. So that hymnal, you're not going to find in heaven. But let's look at the meaning of this worship for you and I here today. First of all, we have been purchased with others from every from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What a glorious scene it's going to be in heaven when we are gathered with all of the saints who have ever lived from everywhere in the world to sing praises to God. Can you imagine what that choir is going to sound like? Take the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir and multiply it exponentially. I mean, we are going to be praising the Lord together. But you, he says here, you have made them to be a kingdom. The Bible says that we will reign with Christ and priests to our God. When Jesus died on the cross at that very moment, the veil of the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies was what? Torn in two, signifying our access to God. You and I don't need to go through a priest to find forgiveness for our sins because the Bible says we are all priests. We are all priests. The priesthood of all believers. And we not only worship Jesus as we see here for who he is and for what he does, we also worship him for what he has. Pick up with me in verse 11. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders found down and worship. Can I get an amen from somebody here this morning? Wow. How can you not read that and respond? Wow. 
In this closing burst of praise, the angels and every living creature join in the worship of the Lamb, our Redeemer. In this closing hymn, they state the things that Jesus deserved to receive because of his sacrificial death on the cross. You see, when he was on earth, he set aside these things in his humility. For example, he was born in weakness and died in weakness, but now he is the recipient of all power. He became the poorest of the poor. Again, as you see here in verse 12, became the poorest of the poor, as we read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Yet now, here in verse 12, he owns all the riches of heaven and earth to receive power and wealth. Men laughed at him. What, during his earthly ministry. They called him a fool, and yet now he is the very wisdom of God as he's always been. And when he lived on earth as a man, he experienced all the weaknesses of living on this earth as he hungered, as he thirsted, as he became weary, as he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Yet today in glory, he receives all strength and all might. He experienced humility and shame as he hung on that cross. People reviled him. If you are the Christ, get down from there and and show us who you really are. And yet, he did not respond. He did not move. He cries out, Father, God, why have you forsaken me? And then when he declared it was finished, said it is finished, and gave up his life. Remember how they laughed at him, they mocked him, but praise God, dear friends, all of that has now changed. He has received all glory and honor and blessing. As Galatians 3.13 tells us, during his crucifixion, he literally became a curse for us that we would never come under the curse of the law that we have continually broken, each one of us every day. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. How many times have you heard a new song and you were hooked? And all you did was want to hear it over and over and over again. You just couldn't get enough of it. I see some smiles out there. Some of you already have that song coming to mind. Please do not sing it now. Okay? Well, in the same way, the heavenly host just can't stop in its praise and worship. As we see in verse 13, this last hymn brings together the worship of God the Father and God the Redeemer Christ. To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All right. I shouldn't have to cue you guys. Come on. We got to liven things up here this morning. I mean, amen. There is no more fitting response than to say amen or amen. Nothing is more biblical to say in a worship service. Because when you say amen, you are saying Yes, I agree. Let it be so. God, may it happen. So what can we take from this amazing chapter of the Bible? You might be sitting there thinking, all right, Pastor Paul, how are you going to apply this one? 
I have three thoughts for you as we close. First, never, ever, ever, ever forget that God is in control. God is in control no matter what. I mean, look at what is said in the worship of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Well, if all of that is true, then it is never true to say, Satan's won, I give up, have a nice life, people, I'm out of here. No matter how crazy things get in our country, in our world, no matter how difficult your life is or may become, nothing can thwart, nothing can stop, nothing can overcome the plan and power of God. You and I as Christians can stand in the midst of the chaos of this world and we can say, it is well with my soul. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. Christ is risen. Nothing's going to change that. Christ is making all things new. I don't know how he was going to do it for Phyllis and I. I don't know how he may do it for you. But God is in control. I'm going to go where Baptist preachers often fear to tread, and I'm going to quote a Roman Catholic by the name of Father John Newhouse. He actually started as an LCA Lutheran, converted to Catholicism. He's the founder of the First Things Journal. Chuck Colson used to quote him a lot. Um, he says this, The Christian has not reason to despair, because despair is a sin. And the Christian has not reason to despair because Christ has risen. Now that doesn't mean Christians don't get depressed, Christians don't get anxious and all of that. But Christ is risen. God has placed you in this time and place. And wherever that is, he will see you through. So first of all, never ever forget to rejoice that God is in control. Second, you and I can be confident and hopeful for the future because he is worthy of your trust. He's trustworthy. I mean, if Christ the Lamb can do all of this, if he can die on the cross and pay uh, the penalty for our sins, and then in the throne room of heaven can walk up to the throne of God the Father and take that scroll out of his hand... My words, friend, you want to talk about someone who is trustworthy. So we can be confident and hopeful about the future. I remember a show that appeared, I think it was on A&E Network, Doomsday Preppers. Anybody remember seeing that show, Doomsday Preppers? One of the saddest shows to ever be on television. Because they featured people who were preparing for doomsday. Either the electrical grid is going to fail or some plague is going to come. And this was even pre-COVID. So I guess maybe they feel like, oh, well, maybe there is something to this. But, um, I mean, they're doing all kinds of stuff. 
to try to prepare and protect themselves. Some people even sold their homes, quit their jobs, and moved out to North Dakota or Montana or someplace out there. Well, I have to tell you, my friends, I have no plans to build a bunker at my house. I have no plans to fill my basement with freeze-dried food and spam. Okay? That's not going to be on my plate. Okay? Why not? Why, why, why not? Because I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to live in fear. Because the one who is worthy of my worship is worthy of my trust. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter how bad things get in this world, I'm ready for him to take me home. If that's what it comes to. I'm ready. I'd rather be there than here anyway. I mean, I like all you folks. A great congregation of people here. But I'd rather be there than here. And that goes for Trinity Church. As we face our time of transition right now. God's got this. God knows who the next lead pastor is going to be. He will see us through. So we don't have to fear. We don't have to freak out. We can trust that God's got his hand at work in the midst of this time of transition for Trinity Church. Because it's not Josh's church. It's not the elder's church. It's his church. And then third and finally, when your life turns for the worse and it gets especially difficult, Worship more and not less. Now, when life goes awry, we are often told, okay, you need to pray. And that's right. Prayer is important. Bring Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, bring a request before God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, yes, we are called to tell God, our concerns in prayer, and there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I often find myself, if I'm honest, when those times of crisis are coming, when that diagnosis is given, to crowd out the worship in my, in my time of prayer and get right to the request. Okay, Lord, uh, this is what's going on. This is what I need you to do. Please answer. Please respond. Uh, whatever those requests are. Lord, help me to do well in this interview next week. I really need a job. And, and the, Lord, the bills are piling up. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But we tend, uh, at least I tend, to crowd out the amount of time I spend in worship when life gets difficult. And what I have learned is the power of worship in times of stress and, un and, and, and uncertainty. Worship can make a tremendous difference. So I've been working to, when life gets difficult, spend more of my time in prayer praising God than I am going down my laundry list of requests. People often say to me, Hey, Paul, how do you as a police and fire chaplain deal with the, some of the horrific scenes you see, 
uh, and, and the help you give to suffering people in moments of great distress. One of the keys for me is worship. It brings peace. It restores balance. It helps me to get my perspective right. And numerous studies have shown the positive impact of worship on the body. If you don't believe me, Google it. The impact of worship on your body. And you'll find all kinds of stuff, including a study out of Vanderbilt University, a bastion of conservative Christian theology. Not showing that uh, they did a landmark study that shows that people who actively worship have greater cardiovascular health, higher levels of immunity, better metabolism, and lower levels of stress. So I'm hoping to worship this away. (laughs) To quote one of the researchers, I love this, we found that being in a place where you can use those spiritual muscles is actually beneficial to your health. Worship is part of exercising ourselves spiritually. Now, you may be saying, Pastor Paul, I have no talent when it comes to singing. Well, join my club, because neither do I. But here are some ways that I want to suggest that you can incorporate more worship in your life, especially when life is hard. One... Utilize worship music. And if you're by yourself, sing along out loud. And even if you're not, sing aloud. Don't, but, but don't let it be elevator music. You know, you're driving along and, you know, you just got uh, K-Love in the background and you're busy talking and chatting and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. It's not elevator music. You need to allow it to penetrate your heart and engage your mind to think about what is being sung. So this is not a passive thing. This is an active thing. Maybe you look up the words online and, and you, you spend some time just thinking about them, meditating on them. Second, take a passage of Scripture like the one we're using today and make it the focus of your worship. You don't have to sing it. You can just speak it. Lord God, I worship you today because worthy is the lamb that was slain. Lord, you are to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Lord, I worship you for these things. Lord, bring them to to, to a greater depth of understanding in my own heart and life. Just take a passage of Scripture. Psalms is the hymnal of the Hebrew Scriptures. Just start using a particular psalm as the as the driver of your worship. And then third, don't miss out on our corporate worship together. Add your voice, as good as or bad as it may be, to the worship of our brothers and sisters. Because this, dear friends, is just a taste. It is just a sample. It is just an appetizer for the worship that is to come with all the saints who have ever existed, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, And whoever else is there to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Kate is going to come and close us this part of our time in prayer. Thank you, Kate. And whatever she prays, let's give it a big amen when she's done. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the lamb who was slain. Um, and you are worthy to receive honor and power and glory and blessing and so much more because you shed your blood and because of your blood that was shed our sins are forgiven and you have brought us close to you um god i just pray that you would help us to to do the things that um that paul has said as far as how we can apply this to our lives um, I do want to ask that you would help us to never forget that God is in control, especially um, during these times of transition at Trinity, that we wouldn't fear or be anxious, but that the outcome is fixed and that you know it all. Help us to be confident and hopeful for the future because you are trustworthy. Help us to remember that the one who is worthy of our worship is worthy of our trust. Help us to increase our worship in times of difficulty and to do the things um, that Paul has suggested with utilizing worship music to just saturate our minds with scripture, to memorize scripture, small amounts or great amounts, and um, to not neglect gathering together. And may those things be encouraging to us. Um, Worthy are you, and let us say amen, and, and let it be so, and that we agree that you are worthy to receive all of our worship and all of our trust, because you are the one who was slain. Amen.